Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Durhaj. It's uh, Roxanne Durer-Hodge again uh, with Authentic Living uh, with Roxanne. Thanks so much uh, for tuning in again. And uh, every week uh, we've been inspired by some uh, really good um, stories about authenticity. And this week, yet again, we have another an amazing example of someone that has been doing that in the, in the world. And uh, that's Coach Jim Johnson. Th- thanks for coming on, uh, Coach Jim. My pleasure, Roxanne. It's great to be with you. So uh, you're in uh, New York, is that where you are? I'm in upstate New York, in a, a suburb of Rochester, New York. Okay, so you're not too far from me because I'm right on the border with uh, Niagara Falls and Buffalo. Okay, yeah, yeah we're so not right too there. far. Yeah. So I'm gonna tell the audience a little bit about your background, but obviously sometimes if I miss anything pertinent, please uh, let them know what you, th- you think they should know. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've been, uh, Coach Jim's been in uh, motivational speaking and leadership uh, for almost 30 years, so for quite a long time. Um, and you've been coaching winning basketball teams, um, high school basketball teams for that time. His uh, powerful lesson came when he put a um, autistic team manager, uh, Jason, uh, into the final game uh, in at Greece Athena High School. And that's where 20 you know, they gained 20 points in just about four minutes to go, a, a valu- valuable, valuable lesson. And I'm going to assume that that's a lot of the things that you speak about. So I'm curious to hear about that. Um, he's written a book, A Coach in a Miracle, and he's going to talk a little bit about where you can purchase that book, Life Lessons from a Man Who's Lived, uh, Believed in an Autistic Boy. Uh, Coach Jim speaks to corporations, associations, conferences, and conventions, but uh, most recently he shared that he's been doing a lot more with the, um, leadership, so we'd love to hear more about that. So thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on. And um, Coach Jim, I, I, when I go out in the world and um, when I started in, in uh, the f- field of psychotherapy years ago, you know, probably almost 30 years ago for me now, I was always, you know, wanting to help people um, you know, obviously people just believe in themselves. And that sounds like that's been something that you've been doing, whether it's on a basketball court or if you're on stage or you're just dealing with a team. So I'm kind of wanting to hear kind of how you think about that and kind of what made you do what you did and um, still do today. Sure. Well, my evolution is that uh, I grew up in a sports family. In fact, my dad was my high school basketball coach. So, uh, and I grew up as the oldest of six. So sports was big in that family. And when I went on to college, and uh, originally I thought I was a, a much better basketball player than I actually was. And I, when I got cut from my college team, that really humbled me. But I realized that I still had a great passion for basketball. And, and because my both my parents were educators, uh, I, I really thought that that would be a field that would be attractive to me. So after I graduated from college, I got the opportunity to get into teaching and coaching. And my number one love in sports was basketball. And so it ended up being a great marriage for me because I, I was able to coach basketball and also through coaching and teaching, try to create uh, and help people in their lives with life lessons. And, uh, you know, it's a great 
microcosm and sports is a great way to teach life lessons if done the right way. And, uh, and I, and I evolved. Uh, I, I was very humbled early in my career. I became a varsity basketball coach at a local high school here at 25 years old, which is pretty young in your profession. And after one year and leading that team to 17 consecutive losses, I uh, ended up uh, leaving the job. The uh, administration dismissed me. And that was uh, a uh, really uh, difficult challenge. My wife and I had just purchased a home. I lost my, both my teaching job and my basketball position. But fortunately, I got an opportunity. I got a mentor, um, a local college coach called me and got me back on my feet. Ironically, his name was Bill Van Gundy, which uh, your audience may or may not have heard of, but ironically, both of his sons uh, have gone on and been head coaches in the NBA. So they, wow. uh, Coach Van Gundy really kind of got me back on my feet. But high school coaching was my real love, and I got back into that. And then uh, my next epiphany was after seven years in three different high school positions as a head coach, I looked at my record, and it was something like 50-something or 90-something, which, of course, isn't too good. And my real epiphany was that as much as I thought I was a good basketball coach, certainly my results were not showing that. And that's when I really went head over heels in my early 30s in uh, studying leadership. And I, I felt like if I was going to be a better coach and be more successful as a coach, I had to become a better leader. And so I've really uh, been a student of leadership for really the last quarter century, and interesting enough, uh, things started to change for the better. We started to have a lot of successful teams. I ended up going to my final position, uh, which was at Greece Athena, a suburb of Rochester, New York, and coached there for my last 20 years. I retired two years ago to school full time. Uh, but in those 20 years, we never had a losing season. Uh, but we, then I had another big stumbling block, and my stumbling block was that in coaching, you're often measured by how you re, uh, re, do in the postseason and there we were stumbling we kept losing in our postseason tournament and we uh, we got to the semifinals and actually lost for the fifth time in the semifinals when a young man came into my program that touched my heart deeply and changed my life dramatically for the positive his name was Jason McElwain I tagged the name nickname J Mac because I couldn't pronounce his last name and he um Really, uh, we became very close, and he became my team manager in my last two years. But his big dream was he wanted to play in a varsity basketball game. And he tried out for our team three consecutive years and didn't make it, which is very unique. I was a coach for over three decades, and I rarely would ever have a player that if we didn't make it the first time would try again. And yet Jason didn't make it and tried three times. So he touched my heart very closely. In his senior year, I told him I was going to give him a gift. And the gift was I was going to put him in uniform for our final home game, which we call senior night. And that's what I did. And just over four minutes to go, I put him in. Uh, and it was really neat because the crowd gave him a standing ovation. And what Jason and I didn't know, one of our parents made these placards, these pictures of Jason's face and put them on paint sticks. And they showed it. And I, normally, I'm a pretty macho guy, but I got so overwhelmed with emotion that I sat down and tears started to roll down my face just to see how he was walking in the game. Well, the game starts. Jason's finally in his first varsity basketball game. First time he touches the ball, he shoots a three-pointer. The crowd stands in anticipation. He misses by like six feet. And I, I kid people that I know you're not supposed to pray in the public schools, but I was praying, dear God, please help him get one basket. 
The next possession, he had a much shorter shot, and this time it hit the backboard, hit the rim. There was a little drama to it, but it didn't go in. But I thought to myself, all right, God's starting to listen. We're getting closer. And then his third shot was a three-pointer, and he made it, and the place just exploded. And I thought, hey, God must be a basketball fan. It can't get any better than this. <laughs> uh, but the interesting is I kid people that Jason turned into his boyhood idol, Kobe Bryant. For the next three minutes, he just started making shot after shot. And the two things I'll never forget with about a minute to go, he, uh, I'm still sitting on the bench, tears still rolling down my face. I get a tap on my shoulder. I look behind me and it's Jason's mother and she's bawling her eyes out and she gives me a big hug and she whispers in my ear, coach, this is the best gift you could have ever given my son. Of course, I was so touched. I cried harder. And then the, how the game and Spencer Porter, the other team that night, and I want to give kudos to their coach and their players. They were great sports that night. We score with 10 seconds to go. And our player takes it out of bounds and normally throws it to our point guard, but this time he threw it right to J-Mac. And J-Mac's dribbling down the court and everybody's standing and it's, you know, clock's counting down five, four. And with about two seconds to go, he pulls up like two feet behind the, the three-point line. And I'm thinking to myself, Jason, don't shoot from there. That's way too far. He lets go this rainbow. Swish. And I look over, our student body runs on the court. Our players run on the court. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm living the movie Rudy. This is incredible. <laughs> and then uh, the other part I'll never forget is uh, Jason's parents have an interesting dynamic. His dad is six foot six, and his mom is five foot two. And I see this little lady running through the crowd as Jason's mother, and she gets to him and gives him a big hug. And then our players put him up on their shoulders. He's got the game ball over his head. And at that point, at the end of the game, I had no idea how many points he had scored. And our public address announcer comes on and says, the leading scorer for the Trojans tonight, J-Mac, with 20 points. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, uh, this is crazy. I said, if he played the whole game, he'd have scored 160. It was just amazing. So uh, after what, a, that, what an amazing story. Yeah, it's uh, – and the interesting thing is I, we had had a really difficult season that I wrote right about in my book, A Coach and a Miracle. And as I mentioned, we had uh, been that stumbling block of losing in the sectionals. And that year, for the first time in my career, we went out and won our first sectional championship. So we wow. uh, and it put the cherry on top. And uh, so uh, that was – it actually thrust me into my second career. I started becoming a motivational speaker, and then for actually the last few years, I've started another keynote on leadership, which we could delve into a little bit deeper if you'd like. So. so tell me, that experience, I mean, you have been working with people. Like you said, you started to – you recognized if I'm going to be an expert um, as a, in sports and I'm going to lead a team, I had to teach myself certain things – to be able to have them gel in a way uh, that would seem seamless, but that they would listen to themselves, I would think really, really deep and capitalize what, what skill they were bringing to the court. So what kind of things that you learned that you started to apply that started to make a difference um, on the basketball, basketball, basketball court? Well, a few things. First of all, as a leader, what I figured out after uh, 30-something years of my life is when I started to read a lot about leadership and talk to different leaders is I, I really didn't, I wasn't clear on what my purpose or my mission in life was. 
And when I developed that clarity about what I was all about, and I, I talk to people all the time about, and I, I ask people what their personal mission statement is. Most people look at me like I got two heads. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I said, but that really was a, a major uh, point in my leadership career was when I was clear about what I stood for. I understood my core values. I understood my personal mission statement. I have it in writing and I can say it verbatim. It's to be an outstanding role model that makes a positive difference in the world by helping others make their dreams come true. And what I share with people that help me immensely, now I help a lot of leaders, is that when you're clear about what you're all about, then your people that you're working with, your team or organization or business, whatever it happens to be, they know what you stand for. They know, uh, you know, what you believe in. And if you live that, you know, and I talk about in my leadership talk of seven keys to be an effective leader, but that was the huge thing from the leader standpoint. The second thing is, is I think I became a much better coach when I realized that I had to build a team on a daily basis. And what I really found the most important thing is you get to build relationships with your players. And early in my career, I did a very poor job there. I was always thinking, looking for the next play or whatever, instead of really the foundation of a leader is building relationships and building that trust, which I talk about. And when I started doing a much better job and when I really, you know, one of my keys I talk about is being an effective communicator is when I turn that around, instead of me doing all the talking, I was doing a lot more listening. And when I listened to my players, my staff, that was the other thing that changed dramatically and helped us become much more successful. So that's a good point, right? Because in my corporate consulting situation, what would happen is I would go into different sectors as the account executive that managed psychological services. And what we would find is there was a definite disconnect. So, you know, whether it was, you know, they, they had boards to report to or, um, you know, and particular targets that they had to hit. So what would happen is there would be a definite disconnect with the leadership and the front line. Um, so because they, be it because of skill or inability to share the message, like you said, if you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, but you also have to make money, understandably. Right. Yeah. What happens is the frontline or the frontline managers would try to communicate directly to the to the frontline staff who would say, well, they don't care. They, they don't care about me. What about me? Do they care about me? And that's often the one thing that I would hear um, from employees as I would kind of uh, go into these programs. So, um, and what we found in some organizations, to your point, is when the leaders are able to share or show in some way that they care, then people are willing to do whatever it takes to make that company successful. But right. there's such a disconnection um, that a lot of companies aren't, um, they maybe are figuring it out, but maybe the, the implementation of how to um, share information by levels down to the front line is where I often saw the problem as being. I don't know if that's something that you see when you um, speak to different companies. Yeah, I definitely think that is huge. And, you know, one of the things that I always, when I started studying leadership, you know, whether it was businesses or coaches with teams, is that, you know, they, I, you hear this a lot, you know, we're going to build a family type atmosphere. Right. And yet, you know, to me, a lot of times that's said, but not really followed through. And like one of the things I share with people is that uh, when I took over and really started to try to make my program more like a family, one of the things I did is I gave a birthday card to every kid in our program, not just my varsity team, but all the way through. And it was 
interesting because I'd say to him, you know what? Do you know how many other uh, teachers or staff or anybody gave a, a student a birthday card? And it rarely ever happened. So it was a way just to show that you care, that you cared to them outside, that you took the time to, to realize when their birthday was and acknowledge that. And just things like that, people neglect. And, you know, the old adage, I think there's so much truth is, is people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think there's a, so much truth to that. Absolutely, because uh, in North America and uh, with the consulting job that I was doing, 65% of people that came to psychotherapy or psychologists to get help was generally around relationships. But the relationships weren't at work. The concerns weren't showing up at work. What was happening, it was happening at home. So they would go and they would, what I quote unquote, function, like I would say. But were they giving, you know, that full capacity to function at a high level? They would show up right? Maybe they'd give you 55, 65% of that. Mm -hmm. um, we call that in, in the field kind of presenteeism. I show up, I'm there, I clock in, I clock out, but I'm going to, I'm going to coast. And with other organizations, when people are aware, like you said, and they really know, Hey, Roxanne's been going through a tough time or someone had a loss or someone's child been really sick. Um, and, and you, and you show that kindness to the employees when time comes around where, you know, uh, business objectives need to be met, uh, those people that you've touched are the ones that are first in line to do the best that they can for you. Absolutely. You know, yeah, I, I found a, a little thing that we started to do is they just talk to individuals and ask them simple questions like, you know, how are things going? How can I support you? Uh, you know, what do you, what, do you, what do you need to work on that I can support you with? And, you know, just showing that you care and that you're willing to listen and by asking questions is a really powerful thing as a leader. And I think you have to be a conscious leader for that, right? To be able to recognize, look, I am, you know, the CEO, I'm the leader. So I'm kind of up there and people are meant to filter things up to me and I'm meant to filter it back down in a way. But sometimes there's a buffer zone that hits the CEO right. and, and he thinks he, he or she thinks they're getting the information, but sometimes people might be scared, not because they're going to lose their jobs, but they're, they don't want to look like they're incompetent or incapable of, of doing their jobs. So sometimes the leader may not be getting the true information of what, you know, their middle managers who oftentimes struggle the most because they're kind of buffering from the top and they're trying to support the bottom, a tough, a tough uh, spot in organizations. So what, what kind of tips, if people are leaders out there or if they're in organizations, what kind of tips would you give leaders? Like, um, you know, sometimes the pulse that they may be getting may be, hey, things are okay, but it's not showing in your numbers or it's not showing your productivity. What kind of, um, kind of guidance would you give to a leader if he would have come to you and say, Hey, hey, Coach Jim, what kind of things should I do to find out what's going on? I, I think the first thing is, is that you, uh, you know, as you're setting, you know, uh, objectives, goals for your organization, your team, whatever it happens to be, is that you have to get a buy-in for everybody. And the huge side thing that really was helpful for me is that, we, you know, we would get together at my house and we talk about our team rules, our team objectives, our team goals. But then the other thing is, is I would ask everyone individually to set their own goals and then I would meet with them and find out how their goals align with the team goals and how we could support each other. And I think that's a real mistake 
And, and that's that builds trust is when you really care that you're going to meet with people individually and find out about their individual needs. And then as the leader, you have to fill that in. I think the other thing that was huge that you had mentioned earlier that often, you know, is if you want to be called the CEO, the, it doesn't filter to you is that I really emphasize with my coaching staff that I wanted to know the good news, the bad news. And because often, like exactly what you said, you know, players would go to my assistance because of that fear factor of my position and share things that they wouldn't share with me. The good news for me is that I built trust with my staff that they would come to me and share with the confidence that I wouldn't go in like tattletale that, you know, that uh, my assistant told me that, you know, whatever this, but I would use the knowledge build a relationship with the player as well. And I think that's so hugely important. As a CEO, you can't sit up in your ivory tower and, you know, just think that everything's hunky-dory. If it's not, and that, you, that's where you really have to have the confidence that your staff, that they will trust that when they tell you bad news, that you're going to use it in an effective way and not come back at them, you know, like killing the messenger type thing, you know, so. So you have to have a pretty, you know, you have to have your ego intact because you have to recognize that um, actually if you're getting the bad news along with the good news, that in fact you're being, you're being a conscious leader at that point because you're, you're saying to your, you know, your senior executive team or to your senior uh, coaching team, like your staff, look, we want to be able to cope with this. Um, I, you, I give you my trust that I'm not going to tell you that it was, you know, Roxanne that told X, Y, Z about such and such, but in fact, you're going to use that information. You're going to go back to the team and, and maybe deliver it and say, you know, I understand that, um, you know, we've been not giving you enough practice time and it's come to my attention. And, and, and I'd like to figure out some ways to better facilitate that need for you. Help me understand what I can do, or maybe do you have suggestions? But I think it's a collaborative end that oftentimes happens with, with performance evaluations um, in companies. And, uh, you know, I think with time it's gotten better. It's normally, you know, okay, the company is going to tell the individual how they need to get better, but they don't allow the, the individual to, to talk to the company about what things they can do to improve as a company. Absolutely. You know, I'm, so that I think you're 100% on yeah, that back and forth says, you know, you know, and they talk skills and subsets. But to your point, you know, when I uh, I ran a uh, treatment center and I was quite young, like you, I was, I was 24 years old, and it was addictions treatment center. So everybody, I often joke around. I'm five foot one, and um, I was 24 years old, and I walked into the unit, and everybody, I swear, the men at least were over six feet two. So oh, there was wow. me and eight of them, and then a couple of others. So the main thing was they had their leadership was tough prior to me coming in. And I was this young person, you know, just getting my first management job. And um, they had, you know, reason to believe that I was going to fail them because they had had leadership that had failed them. And then what I did intuitively, I just, like you said, I got to know each one of them. Like, what is it that I need to know about you that would help our relationship flourish with time? Because I'm new. Yes, I'm new. I'm new to this position. I don't have the answers. You probably have a lot of the answers about what's going to work. But help me help you and help the team. And that's kind of how I engage them. And it took about two and a half, three years, I think, 
for them eventually kind of churning out and getting mad at me and getting mad at management and the whole thing. But eventually with time when I, they were a self-working team at the end where I was able to um, consult with them for two, two days and be able to have them self run the, the unit. So that's a good um, indication, like you said, right? It's about don't come to speak to me when I am doing something wrong. And that's oftentimes what happens to employees. That's the only engagement they have, performance evaluation time, um, bonus time, those types of things, and kind of what can you do better. Would you agree with that? that yeah, absolutely. I, you know, one of the things I talk about you know, with my keys to leadership is building trust in your organization. And uh, I talk about three principles about building trust. And the one that I really emphasize is changing as a mindset of a leader. Because as a leader, I know when I was a young leader, your mindset is, you know, I got to critique. I always got to correct. Right. And I, when I changed that mindset and, and said, you know, certainly that's still part of the job as a leader that you do have to make corrections and critique at times. But when I started to share with people that I was going to try to catch my players doing right more times than trying to critique them uh, and praise them and, and reward them for doing things right, uh, boy, that changed dramatically the trust factor, how the team was built, you know, that uh, this guy wasn't trying to, to support you when you did things well. Because often I hear this a lot when I talk to companies, you know, they don't trust us, they, they don't ever praise us. And you know, there's a lot to be said about that. Uh, and find different ways that you can catch people doing right and praise them. You know, whether it's verbal praise or sending them a, a text or an email or even even though it's slower. Uh, I mean, I still have a, a big envelope of uh, positive notes I received from the years that you keep, you cherish those positive words. Um, so, you know, send people notes. That's something I try to do a lot, you know, is when they do something well, send them a note, recognize that, that you know, they'll greatly appreciate that. So, and I think it's the little things, right? Like you said, it's, and then, you know, with the rapidness of our world, you know, in, in uh, you know, corporate America, corporate Canada, we're on to the next thing. And there's such massive shifts, like at any given point within my portfolio, there was 35 to 45% of flux of, you know, mergers, acquisitions, you know, right sizing, all that kind of stuff. So it's, right, it's, right. it's rapid um, and, and people are always feeling like it's what's the next thing. So a lot of companies would be on to, you know, okay, we need to get to this. We need to get, and people don't stop or did not stop. I don't know if this is your uh, uh, experience to, to relish in what they've actually achieved. Like actually having a bit of a, you know, a little stop gap where you're grateful and you look at, all the phenomenal things that had been achieved in that game or in that last month or in that project and kind of, you know, highlight that for people. Wow. You know, um, Jim, you were able to do this so beautifully. I learned something from you by watching you do this or that because then, you know, we get connected and what we know as human beings is as a, you know, as a psychotherapist is that we, we marry each other and with, with mirror neurons in our body. So if I feel positive towards you, um, or if I feel negative towards you, that really kind of impacts that deep core um, space within myself. So, you know, when you develop trust and you're feeling cared for, your mirror neurons start to kind of way, go in the same direction as myself. And then eventually as a team, uh, it's gonna grow outwards from there. I, I totally concur, you know. In fact, I, I know we used to, 
I'd have a meeting with my staff before practice, and I'd say, you know what, today is just going to be a be positive day. We're not going to really tell the players that. We're just going to go in the mindset as be as positive we can, show, you know, show our gratitude for their efforts and their ability to, and really focus on the positive. And, you know, because I, 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 again, I think um, you can really beat a group of people down if you're always negative, always on them. I mean, certainly, Leah, you know, as a leader, you got to have high expectations and, you know, find different methods to, you know, have positive outcomes. But I'll tell you, there's nothing like um, some positive feedback and being consistent with it. Absolutely. And, you know, um, to speak to uh, um, theory, like in my field, what we talk about is really at the end of the day, we all want to feel kind of warm and fuzzy on the inside, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's like kind of like that. I often say it's like that one warm, fuzzy blanket you had when you were a kid. (laughs) What happened? We all want to feel that, but we also all want to achieve in some way. So it, you never know where you're going to get that that kind of inoculation of positive, right? From it may be the guy opening the door for you, or it may be you know the person sitting sitting at the senior executive table. But I think it's re- that, and it sounds simple, but it's not easy when right. things are not going well, and you're busy, and you're stressed, and all those things. But the gentleness of small little bits daily to your point and you said that and that's that's what i think is very very important is small little steps often instead of even giving them a lot once in a while would you agree with that absolutely and you know i think you got to be very careful when you're the leader that you don't create uh you said it earlier and i'll I'll emphasize where your ego gets on that you know you you forget about people and how to treat them and, you know, one of the things I really try to focus on is I felt like I became a better leader is I was going to treat every person I came across with respect. And, uh, and often that's something, you know, when I see people with power, they forget that. And, boy, that usually leads to a detrimental situation. So you'll be very careful, you know, that you always want to treat people with great respect, um, you know, even when things aren't going well, and that you always have those ears open uh, and be willing to listen. Another thing that I see or I often hear about is that companies that are still doing well, they're still making, you know, their targets and they're superseding their targets and they're getting acquisitions and, but people around them are, you know, dying on the vine and they slowly leave and they don't do the exit interviews and they don't really, you know, because the CEO or the senior management is still being told how great they are. Mm-hmm. You have you had conversations with leaders about that, like where, well, how to kind of um, approach those situations? Yeah, I, I again, you know, when I talk to a leadership team of a business, uh, you know, I always talk to them about that. Um, you know, if you're losing people and you're not figuring out why, then that's something that's really you got to start changing your mindset, you know, and that you know, thinking, because you're right, you know, the, things can go well on the su- surface, but underlying it can be really struggling. And, and if you're, you know, if you start, you know, a cancer situation where it's, you know, maybe if it's one person, but now it's a few people and then it starts to grow and you're not finding out the reasons why uh, and, and trying to make adjustments to correct that, um, that, that will lead to a, uh, the travesty down the road, you know, so, and it's funny because you see it all the time, you know, great businesses that were once, you know, uh, icons in the business and all of a sudden their, their ship is sunk. And, and then those are the types of things that happen is they forget their ego gets in the way 
and they uh, they don't treat people with respect. They uh, cut corners, and all of a sudden, uh, bad things happen. So in reference to going back to team, I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Uh, if so, so let's say there's managers on there or people are working with teams. What are a couple of tips that you would give them um, to really kind of be, at the beginning point to gel a team um, to kind of feel like they have unity? What, kind, what are some things that they can do? Well, I think the first thing that you've got to be really conscious as the leader uh, it's a simple concept, but certainly I've observed it has no practice for a while. You've got to lead by example. All right, so if your ex- expectations are one thing, but you're, uh, as I always tell our players, you're always on stage as a leader. And, and, you know, our staff, we always talk about how we conduct ourselves on a day-to-day basis is either going to enhance what we're doing or going to hinder what we're doing. And I think that's a really important thing is, number one, as a leader, that you are leading by example. If you expect great work ethic out of your team and yet, you know, you you get there late or you leave early, um, you're sending a really bad message. So I think those are things. The second thing, I think, with a team is trust is your foundation. So, the, you know, and I always talked about, I brought up lead by example because is the people uh, are going to respect you more because of what they see as opposed to what you say to them. And, and if you're saying to them and what they see are working together and not against each other, then I think that really helps build the trust. And I always talk to leaders about is the scary thing about trust is trust is such a significant part of a successful team is it takes time to build trust, but you can shatter it with one really bad choice. I'll give you an illustration. Like I always told our players the last 25 years I coached that I wanted to be a great moral model for them. But one of the things I told our players and parents is during a basketball season is I wouldn't drink alcohol, which of course I could because I was a legal adult. But I felt that strongly as a role model that I was going to do that. And fortunately, I kept my word and it helped immensely. But I, I share this. What happens if I would have shared that to my whole group and two weeks later I get pulled over for DWI? Do you think my trust account would have been broken? I mean, it would have just been shared. I probably would have never gotten it back. Right. So when you make a bold statement and then you don't follow up your words, boy, that crushes that trust, which is such a huge problem. Absolutely, absolutely. So. So trust is already the core determinant. And it's so funny when I think about what I do as a psychotherapist or a speaker or a coach, it's the same thing. So I often say to people, you know, it doesn't matter where you came from, right? It doesn't matter. You know, you can, you can develop that internal muscle um, within yourself because it may have kind of been pricked or prodded along the way. But once you kind of get centered and start to work on yourself, you fill yourself up. And then you really kind of can achieve anything, right? And it's really right. recognizing that. But oftentimes what happens is I, I think of, you know, sometimes when you think of a, a dysfunctional team, it's kind of like when we were kids and we were in the sandbox and we were, you know, throwing sand in each other's eyes. You know, everybody yeah. kind of, you know, get the last kind of, um, you know, thing in. And really once we start to like to learn to be gentle and kind, which is really our capacity as human beings, then before you know it, you know, the inside and the outside kind of start to match and it becomes, it, it's kind of hard. It's like, it's like walking by somebody on the street and I grew up in Trinidad and Tobago and everybody smiles at everybody on the street, right? Uh-huh. In North America, 
and I was quite young, I was 17, and I would get on the elevator and nobody would smile. So I would smile and say, good morning, how are you? And they would <laughs> And then after a while, guess what happened to me? After a while I went, oh, I, I'm bothering them. So then I quit smiling, right? Yeah. So it's like anything else, it's that infectious element or um, you know, they say that a smile is like a warm hug, right? To, to mm -hmm. be able to show up, be nice, be kind, or even if you're having a bad day to say, you know what? I'm having a tough day today. I didn't sleep or X, Y, Z that people could respect that much more versus you just kind of cutting them down um, because you're having a tough time. So I think that that conscious um, communication and authenticity kind of translates one into the other. If you, if you're able to trust, um, if you're able to act as a role model and say, this is who I am, I'm going to lead you, but I expect really good things of you. I think you're right. People eventually kind of fall in line. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a big quote guy. I used to give my team a quote, and a couple of quotes I love that I share was, you can never be too kind or too fair. And another one is, attitudes are contagious, is yours worth catching? And I, I think that those I like are really powerful. Yep. So, That's an uh, awesome, attitude is... Attitudes are contagious, is yours worth catching? So, I love that. I love yeah. that. That's amazing. That's amazing. So... um. I know um, you have a book, your book has just recently been updated. So I'd like you to um, share with the viewers where they can find that and where they can find you. Cause I'm sure there's people out there, maybe organizations or even leaders listening on or um, uh, that would may want to, um, you know, reach out to you and to use you for your services. So please let them know, or just for the average person that's listening and loved some of the stuff that you're talking about um, just leadership, because we lead, we lead in our homes, we lead in our friendships, we lead everywhere where we go. And we can all truly be a better leader regardless of where we are in our lives. Where could they find your book? So uh, my book is uh, it's called A Coach in a Miracle. And it, you can find it as well as a lot of information at my website, coachjimjohnson.com. That way I wouldn't forget the website, coachjimjohnson.com. And on that, I, we do a weekly blog that you can sign up for. We do a monthly newsletter. Those are all free. I also have a YouTube channel where we do a lot of videos on all the different content that I've talked about with leadership and building a team and all that good stuff. Uh, so, and, uh, you know, I, I really try to connect. I, uh, I have a big LinkedIn following as well as uh, following on Twitter and Facebook. So you can connect with me. That All that is uh, on the website. And if I uh, can ever help anybody with my services, I'm predominantly a keynoter. I do a keynote called Dreams Really Do Come True, which is an inspirational keynote. And then I do another keynote on leadership called Leadership Lessons from Half Court. And the other thing, I do a breakout session because we spent so much time over the years working with our team on goal setting um, that I do a goal setting workshop that I've done a number of times as well. So. Fantastic. Well, I hope everybody out there, I've, I've enjoyed this immensely. Um, you know, the translation from the court uh, to the company is it's, it's the same dynamic, but we're just in different arenas. So thank you so much. I know this has helped me a lot think through things um, as I go out there into, into companies and also speak. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.